Well, the first 39 out of 41 verses that we've already covered down through the end of chapter 3 were pretty tough. 39 out of the first 41 verses are devoted to the announcement of God's judgment. We have the announcement of judgment in chapter 1. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there's not really any kind of pick-me-up. Things don't exactly get any better. There in chapters 2 and 3, the case against the earth really gets very specific. It's Israel's and Judah's sin that is being pinpointed. But God, in that pinpointing of their sin, is bearing witness, he says, against all the earth. For all the earth has followed in the pattern of the sins of Israel and Judah, which holds out the promise of following in the pattern of their judgment as well. All of that is it's tough. It's tough to deal with. It's hard to hear. It's, it's difficult to acknowledge. We have to be humble, though, and we have to, as this word keeps declaring to us, we must hear the word of the Lord. We must receive whatever God has for us to hear. Now, uh, as the indictment against Israel and Judah gets specific, we, we find that sin has found a home in every realm and every level of leadership in Israel and Judah. So the land barons are pinpointed for using every unjust means at their disposal to steal more land. The rulers are said to have hated good and loved evil, the evil of injustice. The prophets and the priests, the preachers, would say anything that the wealthy paid to hear. And through all of that, the poor and the vulnerable were the ones who were being made to suffer. And so God promised in chapter 1, at the very beginning, before he even pinpointed specifically the sins that the nation was guilty of, God, in his announcement of judgment, pinpointed the high places. And and that becomes a theme over the first several chapters of Micah. If you will flip back, actually, to chapter 1, because I want you to see this. There's this special attention given to the high places. And you may recall from an earlier message what was um, notable, what is significant about the high places. Of course, they were literally, topographically speaking, they were high places, mountains and hills and so on. And, And the thought was that the high places were special because if you went to the top, you could get out of the reach of the enemy. And so naturally, of course, these high places became centers of defense. But the thinking also went in the people's minds that they could also get within reach of the gods. The Tower of Babel would be an example of this. But they could go to the top of the high places and get within reach of the gods. So they were centers of defense naturally, but religiously speaking, they, they became centers of worship as well. It was in the high places that the nations were putting their trust. Israel and Judah were putting their trust. So what does God say in verse 4, or verse 3 rather, of chapter 1? He promised that he was going to come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. In verse 4, he says, the mountains will melt under him like wax before the fire. 
as the Old Testament narrates the uh, description of the, the reigns of the various kings, a, a uh, judgment about how the king did in his reign often has to do with what they did with the high places. So the best kings, who were few and far between, always got rid of the worship that was on the high places. The so-so kings, the you know halfway decent kings, didn't do anything with the high places. And then the evil kings set up shrines and idols and such on every high place that they could. So the high places in the Old Testament narrative are significant. And, and that kind of gives us a bigger picture of God's regard for them when we come into the book of Micah. So Samaria and Jerusalem were built on high places. Samaria, the capital city of Israel in the north. Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom. They were high places, centers of worship and centers of defense. And what did God say about them? Because they had be- become so incredibly, pervasively corrupt, God said about them both that they would become heaps of ruins. Chapter 1, verse 6 says that about Samaria. And chapter 3, verse 12 says that about Jerusalem. Go back over now to chapter 3. Because we're now we're, we're setting up for verse 1 of chapter 4. This is the Lord's judgment. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Remember, God condemns them for the presumptuous of their, presumptuousness of their sin. They think that they can sin with impunity. No harm will come to them because the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple. The temple stands and the wall stands. As long as God's presence is there, we're, we're good. Our, our enterprise, no matter how corrupt it is, is secure. God is with us. So God condemned them for the presumptuousness of their sin. And this is his Sentence in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And then, just like that, this. In verse verse 1, chapter 4. It shall come to pass... In the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. As we get into Micah chapter 4, I want you to understand what the, the message of this chapter is. The message is that things will not end for the people of God as they now appear. Things will not end as they now appear. Now there is struggle. In the end, there will be victory. Now there are tears. But in the end, there will be joy. Now there is sin, but in the end there will be redemption.
and the remnant of people who hear the word of the Lord in faith will be the people that he saves and the flock that he shepherds. Remember, the constant call of Micah is to hear the word of the Lord and to believe it no matter what he says. And the promise is that the remnant who hear will be the people that he saves. So, this word in chapter 4, verse 1, I mean, everything changes on a dime, right? I mean, it goes from darkness, just a very bleak picture, to a sudden, very sudden shift to hope in chapter 4, verse 1. And I noted that last week, there was the same kind of thing. At the end of chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, um, I mean, up until then, there's been nothing but this abysmal picture of judgment. Everything is darkness and everything is hopelessness all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. God's going to come and judge and this is why he's going to do it. And, and then all of a sudden, you, you find yourself being carried up in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 on the wings of the promise of God. And if you're being careful as a reader... It almost feels like the text gives you whiplash. That's how sudden it happens. Well, the same kind of thing is going on here. Chapter 3 starts out the same way that chapter 1 did. Talking about judgment. Again, there's another very dark picture that is being painted for us of what is going to come for those who refuse to repent of their sin. It's abysmal, it's bleak, it's, it's hopeless, and all of that. Jerusalem's going to become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the house of the Lord is going to become just a wooded height. It's going to be overtaken by trees and you know weeds and, and all of that. And then chapter 4, verse 1. All of a sudden, again, when everything is ruin and darkness and hopelessness, you find yourself being carried on the wings of the promise of God. Imagine, put it like this. Okay, we, we've got, you know... Verses, verse numbers here in the text. And we've got chapter breaks and so on. None of that is actually original to the text. So just, I mean, picture yourself kind of reading through this text without any verse pauses or any chapter breaks. And, and reading in 3 verse 12 that the mountain of the house of the Lord is done for. It's going to be plowed over. It's going to be grown over with the, the woods and so on. And then this promise if you're reading carefully and actually paying attention to the flow of things, it, it really gives you a case of spiritual, emotional whiplash to go from that darkness to absolute light. And here's the message again of chapter 4. Things will not end for you as they may appear now. The Word of God constantly gives to us this hope. Now, let's talk about this this text a little bit more. This promise that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains isn't to be taken necessary, necessarily literally. It, it may be true that in the end, there is some kind of cataclysm that makes you know Mount Zion topographically speaking, the highest of the mountains. 
But that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is that in the end, the, the God of Israel will be shown to be the great God, the only God, the most high God, beside whom there is no other, and all the world will recognize it. Everyone will know that the only God is the God of Israel. And rather than the nations coming around Jerusalem to mock its downfall and and to witness its destruction and, and scorn the people of God, It says that the the people of the earth, the people of the nations in the end will flow to God's place in order to hear from him that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. One commentator noted that this is a stream flowing uphill, a stream of people flowing uphill, but even if it's just a literal water stream flowing uphill. That's supernatural. And that's really one of the points that Micah is trying to make here. That this salvation that will come to the nations is a supernatural thing. How How is it that the people of the earth will ever come to recognize there to be one true God? It takes a supernatural work in our hearts. And that's what God will accomplish. That's what He's promising. Now when is this going to happen? I don't know. We don't know when it's going to happen because we don't know when Christ is going to come back. And that's what it's going to take for this to happen, is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. So we don't know when this is going to be consummated. But we do know that the end, the kingdom, has already been inaugurated. Because Jesus Christ has come already. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, it was just a mere five days before his crucifixion, it was a week before his resurrection. How did he enter the city? He found that colt of a donkey, and this is what the Bible says. It says, he found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The kingdom has already been inaugurated because Jesus has already come. Not yet consummated, that awaits the future. But the process has already begun. The tide is already coming in. And there is nothing in heaven and on earth that can stem the tide of what God is going to do. So we already have the beginning of this this salvation because Jesus has already come. At Pentecost, a week after Jesus had ascended into heaven, Jesus poured out the promised Holy Spirit from His Father in heaven. And what was the consequence of that? The apostles were speaking in the languages of the nations, in the power and the boldness of the Holy Spirit, and the nations who were gathered in the city for that great feast of Pentecost heard the word of the Lord and believed, and thousands from all over the known world were there and were saved. They believed, they repented of their sin, and they were saved. And what what happened as they, they went back to their cities, and the apostles from their base in Jerusalem continued to proclaim the word of the Lord. Within a few decades' time, the church had spread all over the known earth, The nations 
We're hearing the word of the Lord. I want to put Micah 4, that promise there of that's the, uh, the mountain of the house of the Lord being established as the highest, lift, lifted up above the hills, peoples flowing into it. I want to put that promise in, into perspective with what Jesus said when he came. Jesus said just before he was arrested, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When the mountain of the house of the Lord is lifted up above all mountains, the nations will come in. Jesus is saying, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I'm not saying that the promise of Micah 4 is finished yet. But God has already begun to fulfill it. The Bible will promise us in the book of Habakkuk that there is coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. We don't see that yet. But the tide is already coming in. People are already responding to the gospel. So many have already heard and believed. Do you see what's happening because of Jesus? Do you see what an incredible thing it is to be able to look back with hindsight to the coming of Jesus and what he did? that this great awesome promise has already begun to be fulfilled. And nothing can stop it now. Nothing can stop it. In verses 2 through 4, the second part of verse 2, it says, uh, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is speaking of the end when Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. He shall judge between many people and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Just an, an Old Testament uh, poetic picture of security and peace. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Jesus is going to return, and he's going to reign over all of the earth. And there will be peace. There won't be any kind of arms race between nations. You know, a, a uh, United Nations organization will not have to send in inspectors to look for chemical weapons in any pocket of the globe, no stockpile of weapons and so on. There's not going to be any of that. There will be no more war because Jesus Christ will be reigning upon the earth because Jesus brings peace, just like the angel's announcement as their song went, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And Jesus told, to, told his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Jesus comes with peace. It has already started. When he comes back, peace will be complete. It will cover the earth. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince 
of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is what Israel and Judah lacked. Every level and realm of leadership that they could possibly look to. They saw corruption. They saw injustice. They saw the love of evil and the hatred of good. And so what did this promise mean to them? That one day there would be a kingdom that would establish peace over all the earth. Now, question is, how must we live in the light of these promises? Look at verse 5. We have to be the remnant who hear the word of the Lord's promise and believe that word and hope in that word and make our resolve today to continue to obey God. It says, this is the remnant taking their stand in verse 5. All the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. How must we live in the light of these promises today? Just yesterday I was printing out a couple of calendars for 2015 to try to organize meetings and events for the new year. And I'm sure that... There's uh, a bunch of you, especially parents with school-age kids and hectic, busy schedules. You're already filling in 2015 on your calendar, right? With different things that you have to do, events you have to attend, and so on. But we can't live our lives by the demands of our calendars. God has a different calendar, a different timetable. And he is promising us that one day he will establish his kingdom on this earth. That's the day that we have to live for, for the promise that is going to be fulfilled. We have to walk in the name of the Lord our God today. Again, reminding ourselves constantly that God has already done so much already for us in Jesus to bring all of this to fulfillment. Christ has already come. Christ has already died for us and lived for us. Christ was already raised in triumph over the grave and ascended into heaven to pour out the blessings of the Father. Jesus has already accomplished our salvation. The Spirit has already been poured out. Our lives are already hidden with Christ in God on high. Nothing is going to stop God from fulfilling this promise to establish His kingdom on the earth and Jesus Christ as His anointed King. And we must live in light of that day, hearing the word of the Lord, hoping in it, and being determined to walk in his name, now and forever. Let's continue on into verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. Again, I want you to see how God has already begun to fulfill this promise. The Lord who promises judgment on his people is merciful. He promises to bring back those that even he has afflicted. So, 100 years from the time that Micah wrote this passage, God would send his unrepentant people into exile. 70 years after that, 
He would bring them back. He would bring back the lame. He would bring back the afflicted. That people, those people would be his remnant that he was restoring as his nation. But there's more to this promise than that. There's more to it than that. In the book of Daniel, it is promised that the Son of Man will come to the Ancient of Days and be presented before him. And Daniel said, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see how God, through history, fulfills the promise of his word? He did it with the afflicted that he brought back from Babylon into Jerusalem. He has already begun to bring the lame and the afflicted from the nations to himself in his son, and there is coming a day when that kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will fill the earth and it will be an everlasting dominion. And the weak peoples of the earth, the divided peoples of the earth, will be one strong nation and we will reign with him. That's the promise of verse 8. It says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Gloria is going to come back to Jerusalem. This is going to take place when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And that remnant, this is the message of Micah, the remnant who hear this word and believe in this promise and hope in the unfailing love of God will be that remnant of people that he saves and will be that flock that he shepherds. That's the promise of verse 8. And we will reign with him. Quickly, let's move on to verses 9 and 10. I know that there is a difference we often feel between, well, it just is. It's not just a feeling. It's, a, it's really a fact. There's a difference between what we have now and what will be then. And that was the case for the people of God in Micah's day. So look at verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. When Micah was writing this passage, Assyria was the major world power, threatening the security of Jerusalem. In fact, she was right on the doorstep of the city of Zion, threatening it with death and destruction. But Micah said, you're not going down to Assyria. He says, you're going to go down to Babylon. And at that time, Babylon was just a a bit player on the stage of world history. But God gave to Micah this prophetic foresight where he could see it would be to Babylon that the people of God would go in exile. And that's the day that he's talking about, even though it was 100 years away. And he's calling it the now. The now of the people of God. That suffering, that oppression, that affliction, that darkness, and that feeling of hopelessness. Because as the exiles went off into Babylon, they would be naturally assuming God is done with us. He promised us the land as our possession forever way back, and now we're being removed from the land. What would you be thinking? We would all be thinking the Lord is done with us. But look at what he says. 
There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. The promise is that they would be restored. Verse 11 and following again talks about the now. What situations, what darkness we face in the current time. It says now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Meaning they wanted to mock the downfall, be witnesses of the downfall of Jerusalem and, and, and mock that downfall. But immediately, again, there's the promise of salvation. Verse 12, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Once again, There is a promise that has multiple fulfillments throughout history that is still awaiting that one climactic ultimate fulfillment in the future. But in the immediate context, this has to do with Assyria, right? Assyria is the great power that is going to be banging on the gate of Jerusalem saying, you're going down. No nation has withstood us yet. Every city before you has fallen. You are just one more obstacle for us that will be flattened. And the people of God were afraid. But God delivers them. Jerusalem didn't fall. In one night, the Assyrian army was crushed when in response to the prayers of the people of God, especially King Hezekiah, God sent into the camp of Assyria his angel of the Lord who took the lives of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And Sennacherib, king of Assyria, was sent packing. So that promise here that we just read is partially fulfilled in that. But there's obviously more to come. This is going to happen again in the future. The nations will gather against the city of Jerusalem. At the end of the Great Tribulation, at this place called Armageddon, the nations will gather to war against the people of God and they will be expecting complete victory. And at that time, Christ will return, His second coming, and He will conquer His enemies with the breath of His mouth. And He will set up upon the earth the throne of David, And he will sit upon that throne and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. In Revelation, it says a thousand years. And because Revelation is full of symbolism, I wouldn't doubt that the thousand years is symbolic for a very, very, very long time. At the end of the millennium, Satan, who has been bound, will be released. And he will go out again to deceive the nations. And they will once again gather to make war against the people of God. In Revelation 20 it says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. 
and then what we know as the millennium will pass into the eternal state. Satan and those who follow him will know nothing but the torment of destruction forever and ever without end. Which raises the question, which side are you on? Which side are you on? Do you see how the promise of Micah 4, the end, is going to be fulfilled? Many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. And that's what I want to ask you about the plans of the Lord. Do you know the thoughts of the Lord? You can say, of course I don't. The Bible says his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're so much higher than ours. His ways are not our ways. Right? It does say that. But why are the nations going to be on the wrong side of history, to use their own expression against them, in the end, because they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand His plans. Do you? Knowing the plan and the thought of the Lord is what makes all the difference for your outlook on your present circumstances, for your outlook on all of life. If you don't understand the promises of God, if you don't note how God has been fulfilling His promises all along, you're going to be overwhelmed with present circumstances. The darkness of your situation, maybe within even your own household, will be insurmountable to you. You won't see any light beyond it. But the message of Micah chapter 4 is that things will not end for the people of God as they now appear the end will be very different. We will have victory. That's the promise of the word of God. Though there is present struggle, in the end it's victory. It's dark now, but it will be light in the end and it will be light forever. There is sin now, but in the end there will be redemption. There is even, worst of all, death now, but the end will have resurrection life for the people of God and that life forever. So just look over verse 12 one more time. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. Micah chapter 4 is letting you in on the thoughts and the plan of God and holding out that word for you to hear and for you to trust. Will you? Will you hear and trust the word of the Lord? Let's pray. Now, Father, I know that for so many within this room, circumstances are very difficult. Problems heap on top of problems and seem to be truly insurmountable problems. Like 
things will never get better and things will never change. But that is not your word. That is not what you promise for our future. You promise victory. You promise light. You promise life in your son. And Father, as we keep our eyes on him and follow the track of your word, we do see, Father, that you have already done so much to fulfill your promise. Already our Lord Jesus has come. Already the angels have sung over him glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Already we have been called. Already we have received your Holy Spirit. The nations are already coming to the Lord of the earth who has been lifted up. He is drawing all peoples. So, Father, I pray that these sure things that have already been would give us hope that today's darkness is not the end of our story. I pray that the people of God would trust you. We thank you, Father, that you are worthy of all our trust. In Jesus' name, amen.